from MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. You're hearing a different voice this week. Believe it or not, I'm all by myself. It's just me. The coach has abandoned me. Rebecca's playing tennis, as always. So you guys are stuck with me for hours and hours. Just kidding. It'll feel like hours, but it won't really be that long. But we have a lot of uh, tennis to talk about from the week. And we're actually going to do something we've never done on the podcast. So I'm going to have you guys look forward to that. And I can tell you what it is. But first, we had something that hasn't happened in seven years on the tour we had a american man win a master series tournament so jack Sock, somebody we've been waiting on for years and years he was supposed to be the next big thing in american tennis and he hasn't really come through and he did he didn't uh he didn't really have any amazing wins against any big name players but that's not his fault he uh you know, he tried to he can only beat who he plays so i'm not going to blame him for the people he beat but he didn't have to beat any of the big four or really any top 10 players but he won the Paris Masters. He had a lot of tough matches. And uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe we'll start to see more from him and he can take advantage of this uh, this week, this week period in tennis. As, as Coach would like to say, the weakest era in men's tennis. I do want to say something to start the podcast, which we don't normally do till the end. I want to remind all of you to go to TennisRevolutionPodcast.com. And hopefully when you downloaded this podcast, you also subscribed so you can get us every week. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coaches, tell your doubles partners even tell your opponents across the other side of the net to uh, download us and and get us out there to the masses. We want to make tennis a big thing in America, and we're kind of failing in that regard. So I hope uh, I hope our podcast will just be a small part of making tennis bigger in America. But anyway, yeah, we had Jack Sock won the tournament. John Isner made the semifinals, so we had two Americans in the semifinals, and I can't imagine that's happened any time in the last 10 years. So the last American to win a master tournament was Andy Roddick in 2010. So that tells you how long ago that was. Um, and, and the other good thing for Jack was that he actually qualified for the year in masters. So he's technically considered one of the top eight players in the world at this point. So he gets to compete in that tournament. And I actually think, you know, based on his results the last few months, he played the labor cup. He had a really good match against Nadal. He, uh, he just represented the American team or the world team really well. So I think he actually has an opportunity to, to win some matches and maybe even make the final four. And then once you're in the final four, anything can happen. So it makes tennis a little more exciting here. It kind of reminded me back of when he uh, was playing the doll and John McEnroe was coaching him and, and McEnroe said, you know, Hey, you're 25 years old. You were supposed to be the next big thing. You really haven't done it so far. What are you waiting on? You know, this is your opportunity. And immediately after that, you know, he came back, gave Nadal a really good match and, and now he's done this. So I think, you know, hopefully this will be a springboard for him. We'll get more into that later. But I think uh, it gives us, an, as American tennis fans, something, a little something to be excited about and, and actually have a player to watch in the year-end tournament too, which we haven't had, as I said, for for a while. So it was exciting. I don't know how many people are kind of still in tennis mode and watching watching tennis, but hopefully people saw Jack win a, win a Masters tournament, which is which is big for his ranking and big for tennis. So... John Isner flamed out against a, a random opponent, as usual, but at least he did make the semifinals. And, uh, you know, he's more on the downswing, and, and Jack is still on the upswing. So at 25, we're starting to see a lot more players peak as they get older in tennis. So 
hopefully he's still en route to doing that. And uh, it will be interesting to see if he can, he can keep it going. But so the other thing I want to talk about, you know, we spend so much time talking about the players on the horizon and American players and, and what tennis needs to do to change. So there's actually a really cool tournament that's starting this week. It's called the Next Gen ATP Finals. So the ATP Finals is next week. So the Next Gen starts this week. And what the Next Gen is, for those that don't know, it is the top eight players that are 21 years old or younger. Which, believe it or not, you have to go pretty deep in the rankings sometimes to get to get players that are 21 years or younger nowadays. So Sock is past that uh, team. You know, those those were some of the big names that were in it before. Uh, Alexander Zverev is top four in the world, but he's going to skip that tournament to play the actual Masters next week. So I just decided to jot down these names for those that, that aren't familiar with it to let you know who's in it. We've got Rublev, who just made, I believe, the semis of the U.S. Open. Kachinov, who's a big big serving Russian. Shapovalov is the Canadian that everybody is really excited about. Gerald Donaldson, the American, born a Chorich, who I don't know how he's still under 21, but I guess he is. And he's had a lot of good wins. I feel like he's already had an up-and-down career so far, but he's also in it. And you've got Chung, Medvedev, who's also a big server. Um, and then you've got, they do a qualifying tournament for the eighth spot. And I've got a player that I have to be honest, I had never heard of, who's named Quincy, who's, I had to look him up today, and he's 294 in the world. So you've got all these kind of big up-and-comers in the top 100, and then you got a random 294 in the world. But to me, what's more exciting than just the fact that they have eight players that are up-and-coming and kind of we get to see how they stack up against each other and maybe who has the most potential is they're doing everything that a lot of players have asked for in tennis for a long time. They're, they're speeding up the game. They're adding all these new rules and features and new formats. So I think it's kind of a... It'll be interesting to see if any of these things actually work. They they all sound good in theory, but whether they actually work in practice, we'll see. So they're going to play three out of five sets. And you say, wait, three out of five sets, that sounds that sounds longer. How is that going to work? So they're playing three out of five sets, but only playing to four games each set. And they're playing no ad. So every game, you're going to have a maximum of seven points. And if you get to deuce, it's just that point decides the game, kind of like they do in doubles now. And then not only that, they're going to play a tie break at 3-3 in every set. So... Basically, the longest set you're going to have is probably, you know, 25, 30 minutes. So that's kind of a shorter format. And then what, I, what I'm what i interested in, and I think they need to implement this in particular on the actual tour, is they're going to have a shot clock. For every point, you have a, a finite amount of time from the time, you know, the, the point ends to the time the next point begins. And I don't know how they're going to do it in terms of if you get penalized. or I think if you run out of time and you haven't served, you just that counts as a fault and you go on to your second serve. So that'll be interesting to see what, uh, you know, number one, how that just works in terms of pace of play. Does it make the matches shorter? Does it make it more exciting? Um, you know, that those are more of the rule aspects that they're changing and, and scoring. But then what they're also doing is something that they've never done in the history of the men's tour, at least as far as I'm aware of. And they're letting players be coached after each set. And that was, to me, one of the greatest features of the Labor Cup, which you had players that were being coached every set or not even every set, every, every changeover, they were being coached by McEnroe and uh, Borg. So that was pretty amazing to have those guys, you know, and those guys are not known for being the most, uh, the most guarded or, uh, or, or quiet individuals. So they were giving their brutally honest opinion. We probably won't see that kind of, those kind of opinions on the, on the next gen, but, but at least we kind of get to see what these coaches are telling these players and, and whether it works or not. And, and, you know, it's not always about strategy. It's about, it's about, you know, just keeping your player focused and, 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 and mentally stable, which can be hard to do. 
And then the other thing I thought was interesting, they're not having any linesmen at all. So you have a chair umpire and, and no linesmen on the court. So every call is going to be electronic. Uh, I assume, you know, the lines will be, the uh, chair umpire will be there to keep score and, and keep everything, you know, running smoothly. But, but the lines are being called electronically, which is what a lot of people have wanted to go for, go to for a long time. Take out some of that human error aspect of tennis. And then the other thing is what they've been doing in, in Division One college for a while, which is no lets on the serve. So that's just another way to speed up the game. If the serve goes in the box, it counts. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's just there's no, it doesn't matter if it hits the net. It just counts. So you, you occasionally get those, you know, random aces where a ball hits the net and just dribbles over. But, but those are so rare. I think it's much more exciting to have a serve that hits the net and, you know, the guy has to charge forward and hit it and then we get kind of a dramatic point, especially if it happens at a deuce point or something like that. So I think, I think that does make sense. And I think the actual tour will go towards that in the future. They just haven't yet, probably for the sake of tradition. or So that's that's kind of what they're doing in this tournament, which is you know, setting up all these things to see if they actually work in practice, as opposed to just talking about them and saying, oh, it would be great if we could do that. But they're not going to throw it in in a grand slam and say, hey, maybe this, uh, maybe we should try this for the first time ever in a real tournament with all the best players. Because then if it doesn't work, you're stuck with it for the tournament, and it's just kind of a bad look for the tour. So they'll do it for this kind of one-off event. And then, but don't be surprised if next year, it's in every tournament or in the major tournaments or 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 they try it out at the actual tour level in a in a full scale tournament. So just looking at those names, you know, a lot of those players have had have had a lot of success this year. Obviously that's why they're in the tournament, but Shapovalov to me is the one that stands out as the most Shapovalov, as I keep getting corrected. Oh, but I don't have anyone here to correct me this week, but they would be correcting me if they could. But Shapovalov has had the most success of anybody this season, just consistent success of those players. So I would think, uh, you know, in my mind, he's probably the favorite. And then you've got Rublev who had a real big, you know, outing at the open. Donaldson's been a pretty consistent success on hard court. And then the rest of the guys that are in, they're not, you know, they're all good players, but they've been a little more spotty with their results. So the one thing that I like about the format of this tournament, you know, it's still the two groups of four and then the, the top two from each group go to the semis. So you kind of get legitimate, usually get the most legitimate, you know, semifinals and finals that you can so I, you know somebody like a Medvedev or or Kachanov who are kind of big big hitters even Rublev's a pretty big hitter you don't normally see guys like that do well in this kind of a format because you just have to be on for five matches to win the event so that's kind of hard to do in the same way that you haven't seen you know these huge you know huge servers like Isner or, or um, you know really big hitters like Verdasco and some of these guys that you know, they don't do well in the uh, in the year end for the the top eight because you just don't see them beat, you know, three top eight players consecutively because you just have to be on for so long. And that's, that's hard to do at any level. So you can do it a little bit more in the women's because, you know, some of the pace is just too much for the other players to handle, but all the guys are, are pretty similar, you know, and how hard they hit. So they've all seen it before. They're not going to be overwhelmed by it. But yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to be the only one here to pick. I'm going to pick Shapovalov and see how it goes. And uh, if he's able to, pull it out, then he definitely can use that next year. And, and and the big thing for these guys is they're just looking for exposure. They're looking for, you know, endorsement deals, I'm sure. And they want, they want the world to see them and, and give them a chance to move on to the higher tier. So that's what, that's kind of what this term was set up for. It was for the fans to get a chance to see these guys and, and, and for them, the players themselves to be able to one measure themselves against the same age players, because that's who they're always going to be compared to. You know, everybody's looking up to Zverev right now. Who's, who's top five in the world. He's one of masters and he just, uh, you know, he is the measuring stick right now for all these guys. So 
it's a shame he decided not to play. We totally understand it because he's not going to do both of these terms back to back. And with the second one being the more important one, he's got to focus on that one. But it's interesting that all these guys are kind of going to be aspiring to be in his position next year where they can be, you know, top five and top 10. And, and a lot of people think these guys are, are well on their way. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. You know, you definitely get, uh, also a glimpse what I like into what, you know, tennis is going to look like in 10 years, because if we think about it now, I mean, Federer 36 years old. So it means 15 years since he was under 21. So if you'd watched him 15 years ago, you just said, okay, this is what we have to look forward to for the next 10 years. So that's kind of for me, what I think is, uh, is most exciting about this. And anyway, something else I wanted to talk about without, uh, any more buildup. I think the, uh, the question I have to ask myself the most, and a lot of people ask is, you know, where are the players in tennis right now? So we were in the off season mode as a coach. And I always like to joke about, there is no tennis off season, but this year for all the top players outside of Federer and Nadal, there really is. And even Nadal just got injured this week in Paris for those that, uh, weren't familiar. He got a little knee injury. So he decided to cut his losses and get out early. And he, he figured out he clinched the number one ranking over Federer. So he probably didn't need to, uh, didn't need to push anymore. I'd be pretty surprised if he plays the year end actually, but, but he might, but regardless, it's kind of been a bad year for tennis, lots of injuries. And, and kind of the question I get the most, just when I'm teaching tennis and talking to people about tennis is, you know, when are these guys coming back? Where's Djokovic? Where's Murray? Where's, you know, Nadal Roundich? Where are these guys? So I just decided to go through and there is no, you know, there is no coherent site for this information, which is kind of the whole reason that inspired coach to start the podcast and me to join is I just wanted a place for people to go to get tennis information, whether it be news or, you know, predictions or analysis of tournaments, that kind of thing. And you just don't, you can't find that anywhere. You know, tennis.com is tennis magazine. They're just tennis magazine is too far behind in terms of time. Tennis.com is, you know, got, got almost, you know, kind of scattered information. So you don't ever get just a comprehensive place to find this stuff. So I had to spend, a little while looking this up and what I found out the great news is for 2018, every significant player is supposed to be back for the Australian open. So that should be a, a huge tournament for fans and players. And, and it'll make it really interesting with the seating and you know, the draws is how these players are all going to be matched up because you got a lot of players who played all year this year who have really high rankings, you know, team and Zverev and some of these guys who, who are great. Karina Boost is top 10 now, Sox top 10. So all these guys are good players, but if they were having to play all these guys that are out, historically, they haven't done so well. So if you have guys like, you know, Karina Busta and Sock and Isner and Query and those guys all seated, you know, in the top eight, and then you've got people like Murray and Djokovic and Warinka and Nishikori all outside the top eight, it could be pretty, there could be some crazy draws. I mean, you could easily get a draw with, you know, five or six of the top 10 players in the same quarter, which would be uh make for some really interesting first round matches. I think it's funny that, um, I think everybody thinks they're going to just follow the Federer formula, which is, Oh, I got injured. I took time off. I'm so fresh. I'm rested. I'm going to, I'm going to come out and beat everybody. And it, it hasn't worked for anybody else, but him. So we'll be interested to see, but I decided to look up, you know, Nadal's got a knee injury. He's kind of day to day. Murray's got a hip injury and he's coming back at December, a little exhibition tournament. Novak's got an elbow injury. He's out until December. Wawrinka's got a knee injury. He's out until December. Raonic has a wrist injury. He's kind of been in and out all year. And he's coming back in January for the exhibitions and the uh, the Australian warm-ups. 
Nishikori's got a wrist injury. He's out to the Australian, but of all those players I listed, he probably has the most dire prognosis. I didn't really read anything definitive on him about when he's coming back, or I think he's hopeful that he's going to be back for the Australian, but he just had so many injuries and, and can't seem to keep it together for six months, so I wonder if he's going to be back to full form ever again or anytime soon. And same with Monfi, he's had a host of injuries, so he's supposed to be back for the Australian, but uh, you know he's probably on the way down. So like I said, it'll be interesting if all those guys come back. I think it'll be uh, it'll be you know a big tournament for. You know, I think hopefully the tournament will promote all these guys coming back because I think that's that's a big selling point. You know, when you get these guys back and you get to see big names in the tournament, you know, when they're not playing, the tournament's kind of stuck with promoting whoever's there. But when you've got everybody playing, all the top players, past and present it makes to me a much easier tournament to promote and a much more competitive tournament because I really have no idea what to expect. And I'm sure most of the fans feel the same way. You know, we don't we don't really know what to expect from these guys when they come back. Are they going to be full strength? Are they going to be 50-50 just kind of playing because it's a major or what? So that's what I think is uh, is going to make that tournament probably one of the best Grand Slams we've had in a while. We had Federer and all in the final in 2017 and Serena and Venus. So it would be pretty uh, pretty surprising if it was those, that foursome again. I mean, Venus has had an amazing year, but you've got Serena coming back from in, from uh, pregnancy, Nadal be coming back from injury, and Federer now is, but can he do it, you know, for a third major in the last five, or can he make the finals and, and even win it? So I think that we're kind of set up for a new field of players to make it deep. And like I said, if, if Djokovic, Novak, and I mean Djokovic, Murray, and Stan end up in the same section, well, only one of them can get out. And then you've got, you know, the only two that we know are going to be separated are Federer and all. Outside of that, we really don't know where all these other players are going to be placed. So if, if it's not a Federer and all final, it could, be, it could be anybody. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I always look forward to the Australian, you know, because it's just, by then I'm ready for tennis. I feel like right now we've kind of wrapped up the year and we, the year end is kind of like icing on the cake. We've already, we've already had dinner. We've already had our entrees. We've already had appetizers. We've had it all. We've had our dessert. Now we just got the icing coming with this, this tournament and we usually get good tennis, but I think a lot of the guys are kind of, they're just there for fun because it's a prestigious event and, and they're not necessarily going all out to win their tournament like they would in a grand slam when they're going to be battling and playing injured. And no matter what they want to win that to add to their grand slam total. So it, so we do have that to look forward to, but it's not just not quite the same. And it's it's lost a little bit of luster too now that Nadal happened to clinch the number one ranking already. You know, Federer just just skipped a few too many tournaments, and I kind of I had a feeling that was going to happen. I didn't know Nadal was going to be nearly as successful this year as he has been. But when Federer skips, you know, so many tournaments, you just can't. I mean, you can't win every tournament you play number one, and you can't catch up to somebody who's making it deep in every tournament. So. You know, if you take it all out and you got a bunch of guys making the quarters or semis, you know, in 20 tournaments, then Federer has a chance. But when you got Nadal's winning the tournaments Federer doesn't play, and then he's making, you know, semis and finals the tournaments Federer does play, it's just not, it's not a fair comparison. I do think Federer has been the best player this year, without a doubt. But, you know, if Nadal wins the year end, then maybe he can, he can make a claim for that. They did both win two grand slams, but I just think Federer's won. He's beaten Nadal every time they played. It's just not, uh, to me, it wasn't close in this particular year. Other years it's been, you know, Nadal has, has had a winning record against him and they've split slams and it's more debatable. But but I think uh, you just can't you just can't play 12 tournaments or however many Federer's played. It's something probably in that neighborhood and expect to be number one in the world. Which leads us to a future topic. I had a, 
new concept I'm going to bring to the podcast, so I won't be alone in the second half. So tune back in to find out what it is next. It's time to join the revolution. Go to our website, tennisrevolutionpodcast.com to get the latest episodes, email us your questions and comments, or give us show ideas. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Thank you for enduring this, of listening to me for 45 minutes by myself. But the good news is, I'm right on everything. I've got nobody here to contradict me. Rebecca's not here to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, about fashion or or uh, league tennis. And, and Coach isn't here to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, about pro tennis. So it's perfect. I have the answers to everything. And with that, we're going to do something we've never done on the podcast. We actually had mail from listeners, believe it or not. And now that I'm here by myself, I have an opportunity to talk to you guys since I've got nobody else to talk to. That wasn't meant to sound so sad, but it did sound sad. But so our first email we got was from Blair from Arkansas, and she said that she wanted to know a little bit about my tennis background. Believe it or not, this was an actual person. She actually wanted to know about me. And so I will answer that by saying I started playing tennis when I was 15, which was a little bit old for most people that teach tennis or played college tennis. So I just started at 15. I used to kind of mess around, you know, with a racket and hit balls up against a wall and I really played. My, my dad had played, so it kind of it made me want to learn how to play. But I never took formal lessons or anything. And then I went to high school, and I love, I'd love telling the story, which is that I failed miserably to uh, in my golf team tryout. And so I'm like, hey, didn't work out for golf. Let me try uh, tennis. And went to try out for the tennis team. Well, to my great uh, fortune, they had five players on the team, and they needed six. So anybody that tried out would have been on the team. So I tried out, and made it. And in a couple of years, I was a captain of the team, which was exciting. And, um, I just, uh, kind of went from there, went to junior college, didn't have a tennis team where I played. So I just practiced all the time, started working at a tennis center. And then I went to a bigger school where the coach happened to be the coach, which is how we know each other, a little hidden gym there. And, and he coached me up and we, we, uh, had a good run there. I was a college tennis player after, like I said, starting at 15. So that was exciting and played with him a couple of years. And we went to, you know, playoffs and conference championships and things like that so that was great and then I just went on and I kind of was at the time I was playing college tennis I was still coaching tennis and teaching tennis and you know stringing rackets doing all that stuff that people in tennis uh, pro shops do and then I just gradually uh kind of worked my way up I got certified by the USPTA to be a tennis pro and then I uh you know worked at a public tennis center for 12 years and then I moved to a country club and then I moved to a fitness center that's kind of a combination country club you know gym fitness center tennis center kind of thing it's a wonderful place I'll, I'll uh you'll have to come by and see me sometime take some lessons but anyway uh it's uh it's a it's a nice facility and I'm, I'm the director of tennis now there I'm fortunate enough to be the director there for a year so building up the program and I just uh now I get to focus mostly on teaching and I still try to play I'm a 5-0 uh USDA rated player so I still play on teams and play leagues and tournaments and things like that so that's my background. I, uh, I'm one of the few pros that still tries to play tennis. I just think that's, you know, you've got to kind of keep your, uh, keep yourself in all parts of tennis, you know, coaching, playing and management. I think just think it's important to kind of see everything from all sides. And I think it gives you a better understanding of 
of just all forms of tennis because I think a lot of people get so caught up in just playing. All they do is play or all they do is practice or all they do is coach and all they do is tee. And you don't, you don't kind of appreciate. I try to appreciate all aspects and there's certainly positives to get out of all of them. And then the second question she had, which is something we've kind of touched on in previous podcasts, but not, not in detail, which is why don't they show doubles on TV? And so I was doing some research today, and, and one thing we all know as tennis players is that everybody plays doubles. It's every league that we play, there's doubles. There are very few just pure singles leagues. So every league is either all doubles or a combination of doubles and singles. So the first thing is that everybody plays it. So for that reason, you would think, oh, well, they should just show all doubles on TV because that would appeal to everybody. So with that, you know, we got to figure out why don't they show it. Well, the number one reason they're going to tell you when you ask, why they don't show it is that none of the big stars play doubles. So Federer doesn't play doubles. Morinka doesn't play. Djokovic doesn't play. Sharapova doesn't play. Serena doesn't play. Outside of, you know, rare, you know, exhibitions or, or team competitions, you know, for the most part, those guys and girls don't play. So they're going to say, we don't have the star power in, in doubles, so nobody wants to watch it. So that's why we don't show it. Well, I don't agree with that theory because if you show doubles all the time, you're going to have stars and doubles too. You know, Martina Hingis, you know, coach was at the U.S. Open. He said Martina, Martina Hingis's courts were packed. So everybody there wanted to watch doubles. People love watching doubles in person. Um, like I said, they all play doubles. They can relate to it. I think the real, in my opinion, and I'll we'll ask, uh, ask the, the gang to, to follow up on this question next week. But for me, I think it, at, the, at the highest level, doubles is not really the most fun to watch for the simple reason that the points are very short. If you're a really good doubles player, you're going to hit a serve and the next point should be a volley that you're going to put away and the point's over. So that's not the most exciting and it's not the most relatable for me to watch somebody hit a 140-mile serve and either the person doesn't return it or they return it and I put the next ball away because that just doesn't happen at the recreational level, which is you know 95% of people are at the recreational level of tennis, probably maybe more. So for us to watch... Um, cause me, me, the fun part about watching doubles is trying to learn something from it. So oh, what do they do there? You know, what strategy do they use? Well, there's not much strategy when you hit a serve and the person can't return it. That's not a strategy that I can emulate as a player. So whereas in singles, you're going to have some rallies, you know, the, the big servers aren't as fun to watch either, but nobody wants to watch Isner and Query play singles either for the same reason. You're just going to watch a serve that's not returned or a serve that's barely returned and the, and the next shot's a put away. So I think that for me makes those matches not desirable and, and also doubles matches a lot of times not desirable. So I think when you get, you know, really good doubles points, they're amazing. You know, you get some angle volleys and lobs and, you know, drop shots and, and uh, you know, reflex volleys. And those, those are exciting. But unfortunately, those are the, the rarity in doubles. So I just think that for that reason, it's not really set up, you know, for mass viewing. I think it, it would actually be more interesting to watch tennis, you know, doubles at the lower level where you can learn more and kind of point construction and strategy. And, and to me, that would be more interesting to watch. Than, than watching pro doubles. So that's my theory on that topic. But like I said, we can get the gang to weigh in. I think uh, I do wish that doubles was shown more often because I do think there are some things to get out of it. It's just not, uh, you know, the not as beneficial as probably watching a singles match where you're getting to see all the strokes and, and the rallies, like I said, and also the personalities. You know, you're getting a lot more of that, you know, one-on-one competition of singles in terms of, you know, I'm going to beat, this person on this day, whereas in doubles, I might play amazing and my partner plays terrible and we still lose. You don't get that, you don't get that mentality of I'm going to beat you and you know, this is how I'm going to do it as opposed to doubles. It's, it's a team, it's a team effort. And I think it's really hard to win in doubles if one person is not holding up their end. And so it doesn't lead to those rivalries. And in doubles, you're getting players with different partners all the time. You're just not getting the continuity 
Like there is no dream matchup of doubles where people are going to get excited. Federer and Nadal, we want to see that. You know, Nadal Djokovic, we want to see that. Federer, Federer, and you know, Nadal, those kind of things. We want to see those. There's not really, you know, we don't want to see the Bryans against, you know, Jamie Murray and you know who. If it was Jamie Murray and Andy Murray, then maybe. But again, they play one time. You kind of got the novelty of it. It was exciting. It's not really a thing we want to watch, you know, on a regular basis to see because it's not going to prove anything because one of the players is going to be different. You know, the pairings are going to be, if you had maybe consistent pairings, maybe that's a way you get consistent pairings all throughout the year. And you say, you know, you pick your partner and you're stuck with that partner for the whole year. I think then you might get some rivalries and conflicts. And to me, that's what uh, tennis in general is missing, but especially doubles is the, just the conflict of, uh, of kind of these rivalries that you see in other sports. You know, you know, when the Cowboys play the Redskins, that's going to be a rivalry and there's going to be people trying to hurt other people and, you know, you can tell that people really want to win. Whereas in tennis, it's, you know, we get a lot of this. Well, he played great. No, he played great. You know, I, you know, I, he did this really well. And he did this really well. Like, I'm, I'm kind of over that aspect of tennis at the professional level. I think that's great at the recreational level to have, you know, to be, you know, complimentary and sportsmanlike and all that. But I think at the pro level, we, we know that you guys want to beat each other. Don't, don't try to fool us and act like you're just playing, you know, two friends playing a match and, and know the, the, the best man win. I don't think that's what... Uh, I don't think that's what any of us want tennis to be or, or and I don't think that's what the players think it is. So I think it, you know, if you could make doubles into that and make singles even more so into that, I think it would be better for all, for all players involved and all uh, parties involved. So we had another, uh, another one of our dedicated listeners that uh, sent me an email and he asked me, it was an email this morning. He said, did Jack Sox win this week represent a breakthrough for his career? Um, and I thought that was a great question. That was Spencer from uh, Austin. And he said, uh, you know, we haven't had an American like this in a while is basically what he's, I'm sure implying. And, you know, will we be able to see somebody that, that can actually springboard and take this, take this to a, uh, you know, have somebody we can root for for a while. And, and the short answer I'm going to give is yes, it's, it's definitely a breakthrough for him and he hasn't won a master's. As far as I know, I don't think he's made a master's final. He might've made one previous, uh, master's final. And yes, he beat a qualifier in the final, but again, that's that's out of his control. It's not his fault that that these big name players weren't playing and a lot of them were injured. You know, he he earned it by being, you know, healthy, you know, for the most of the year and and uh, and beating all the players that were in front of him. So I think that kind of back at what we what I referenced in the first half is is McEnroe motivated him at the Labor Cup. It seemed anyway. I think the other thing that motivated him at the Labor Cup was he was with, you know, probably six or eight of the top ten players in the world. And he held his own against all of them. I mean, he he proved that he can compete with anybody. And so I think uh, now that he knows that, there's no reason that he can't be going deeper in these tournaments. So, you know, I think there's always a a level of of uncertainty with a Grand Slam as opposed to a, a regular tournament. Part of that because of the three out of five set aspect. And the other part is just you, you're just doing it over the course of two weeks, kind of like I mentioned earlier, which is you can't have a streaky player go two weeks into a tournament. You've got to be consistent and you've got to be, you know, and you've got to be able to withstand when someone else is on a hot streak. You know, if you play seven matches in a two week period, you're going to play somebody who is really on their game. So you've got to be able to strategize. You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to withstand, you know, maybe they play one great set. Maybe they play two great sets. So it's, uh, and, and conversely playing one great set for you or two great sets may not be good enough. You know, in this master's tournament, you play two great sets every match. You're going to win the tournament. In a Grand Slam, you got to do that three times against somebody else who maybe, you know, is playing their best. And 
And obviously, grandsons bring out all the best players. So, you know, I'm not ready to say that he's just going to be for sure a top 10 player. I did. I will go on record with this now that no one else is here to, to uh, call me on it, that he, he was, uh, he's going to be a top five player. I've been saying that for, you know, for the last several years. I still am going to stick by it, even though he's made me doubt myself a few times. But I've got him, you know, in my mind as a top five player. I think some of these guys got to fade away eventually. You know, Murray, Djokovic, Federer, and all they've got, you know, two, three years, they've got to be off the tour. At least, at least some of them, if not all of them. So that's going to leave the window open for him. And I think, uh, you know, he's got a game that's set up for hard court and clay court, which we haven't really had any American like that since Agassi. So he can win on both those services. He's even got, a, I mean, grass court even with this big serve. You know, he could do okay there too. So I don't see any reason why he can't do do uh, better. I just think it's a it's a consistency thing and it's a mental it's a mental thing for him of just being able to do it week in week out. And then the second question from Spencer was, you know, we've talked about this, kind of joked about it off and on all year, but he said, "Does Nadal's U.S. Open win change our opinion about his status as an all-time the best ever, or as an all-time great, or is it all you know based on Grand Slam wins?" Uh, I think, again, the short answer is Grand Slam wins are always going to be the number one factor. I just think that's kind of the easiest way, just like, you know, titles with, uh, you know, even NBA, you hear a lot about, you know, who won the most championships. You know, if we, if a coach in the NFL would be who won the most you know championships, players for those, are, those are team sports, but still, they're always going to be measured by championships. And if you ask any player their greatest achievement, it's always going to be how many championships they won. <coughs> Excuse me, but... You know, for Nadal, I think for him, he does have the opportunity to be considered as good or better than Federer if he can get within, you know, one or two slams of him. If he can win, you know, two more and Federer doesn't win anymore, then we're going to start looking at, okay, they're one or two slams apart and Nadal has a dominant record, which he still does, even after Federer has beaten him every time this year. He still has a dominant record against Federer. So he's got that. He's going to have more Masters Series titles than Federer. He's undoubtedly the best clay court player ever. That's that's undisputable. So if you consider clay court and hard court as 50-50, he's got the clay court no matter what. You know, if you say Federer's got the hard court, that's fine, but you can't say that unequivocally he's the best hard court player ever. You know, you got Sampras, you know, Agassi uh, to probably a lesser degree, Djokovic. You know, you're going to have a lot of guys in the conversation for best hard court player ever. With Nadal, there is no conversation. I mean, he's, he is without a doubt the best clay court player ever. So... If you just take it based on that, it's 50-50. And then, like I said, if if uh, the fact, and one thing that Spencer pointed out was that the, Nadal won this this slam on hard court, which I do think helps. So if he were to win another, I mean, what would have helped the most if he beat Federer in the final? That would have been, if you could re- change 2017 and make it where Nadal beat Federer at the Australian Open final and then won the French and then won the U.S. Open, we'd be having a totally different conversation. We might be saying, you know, what does Federer have to do to regain his status as the number one of all time? Because they would be a lot closer in slams, and Federer and Federer would just be continually losing to Nadal in all the big events. But but that didn't happen, obviously. So I think it's uh, it's you know a, an interesting topic, and I do think we can't get a true assessment until the year's over. I mean, you know, year in number one means a lot. You know, obviously number of titles overall. You know, there are a lot of factors that come in, but Grand Slams to me are always gonna be number one. But if you look at you know BCS, it's probably not called the BCS anymore. You can tell how much I watch college football, but the the playoffs in college, you know, the first thing is always win-loss record. And then after that, you know, if you're close in win-loss record, then it goes to head-to-head, then it goes to, you know, who did you beat, which is back to coaches' argument about who did you beat, you know, saying that these guys didn't beat anybody necessarily except each other. 
So I think, uh, you know, when you factor all those things in, it's not, it's not uh, that easy to say with those guys because they are, especially if they end up really close in titles, I think you have to start considering, hey, Nadal, you know, dominated Federer at all these different events. He won more Masters. He has a winning record against Djokovic, Murray, Federer. So if he ends up with a winning record against basically everybody, every one of his contemporaries, and Federer's going to end up with a losing record against Djokovic and Nadal, yeah, they're a little bit younger, but not not dramatically, not a dramatic difference because Federer peaked a little bit later than uh, than those guys did. So I do think it's it's a worthwhile conversation. Uh, so I think it you know it's something we kind of have to put in perspective the next couple of years. And 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 if if Nadal were to somehow win the Australian and the French, I mean it would be it would be on for the next couple of years in terms of you know, that could determine who is considered the best of all time. But, you know, I do think that's an interesting question. I think we'll keep talking about it. For me, it's, it's to answer his question fully, I think Grand Slams is the number one, number one, but when the Grand Slams are within one or two, I think you have to bring in other factors. If Federer had 20 and it all had 15, to me, that nothing else really matters. But if it's, you know, 18-16, 18-17, I think you have to put those other things in perspective. And I don't think Djokovic is done by any means. He could easily win three, four more, and then he's in the conversation. And then all of a sudden, Federer's got a losing record against both guys. Um, you know, they've won more Masters, both of them, than he has. And so it's kind of hard to say that uh, that Federer's the greatest ever when you got two more guys that have won almost the same amount of Grand Slams. Because Federer, one thing I will agree with Coach about, and I'm only saying this because he's not here, of course, but that uh, he, Federer did pile up a lot of Slams early against weaker competition. You know, he beat... He beat Baghdadis in a Grand Slam final. He beat Songa in a Grand Slam final. And so did Nadal. Nadal beat Puerta in a final. He beat Verkirk in a final. So there was a lot of, you know, guys that they beat early on that were not, that were not, you know, considered strong players even at the time. So really of the, when you talk about strength of schedule, to me Djokovic has a big edge on both of them because he had to win all his slams against those guys, against those big four, Murray, Wawrinka, Djokovic, I mean uh, Nadal, Federer. He didn't get too many easy paths for any of his slams. And he had, not only that, he had to develop his career while those guys were already dominating. So, I mean, nobody wants to talk about Djokovic as, as the greatest all time, but if he ends up winning, you know, like I said, three, four more over the next couple of years, I think it's it's definitely worth uh, the conversation. And once again, it goes back to Nadal, clay court domination. He has that He has that surface locked up probably forever. I mean, 10 French Opens, all these Masters titles, you just can't, I mean, there's not going to be anybody for a long time that has that kind of success on one surface. And truthfully, I don't think it's fair that the year-end tournament's always on hard court. I don't think it's fair that two of the four master, two of the four Grand Slams are on hard court. I mean, if we're truly going to value each surface, there should be you know some rotation on these bigger tournaments of surface or, or at the very, or just say it's a hard court, you know, tour, and then that you throw in these clay court and, and grass court sporadically, but don't sort of act like they're even, but then... You have clay court tournaments every week, but then all of a sudden two of the Grand Slams are on hard. I don't quite think that's really fair because if we had two of the four Grand Slams on clay and then we're talking about Nadal with 20 slams and Federer with, you know, 14. So I think that's uh, another thing we have to consider. And then one more question we had. We had Marilyn from Dallas right here where we do the podcast from. She said, why are there so many ringers in league tennis? So this uh, this is a topic we could talk about for, for hours and, and we kind of went into this a little bit last week um, and maybe that's what she's referencing with this question but I kind of just you know I try to think about this question 
kind of methodically, and I just went through a few answers. And, and to me, the, what I put as number one, I think, is, is kind of what it boils down to, is it's a lot more fun to win in any sport. And the easiest way to win is just play somebody that's not as good as you. So it kind of goes, you know, if I want to, if I, if you told me, hey, I'm going to give you $50,000 if you win this match, you know, and here's, here's a hundred people you can play against, which one are you going to pick? Well, I'm going to look through those hundred people and find the weakest opponent I can get. And so that's kind of, I, I feel like what some of these players have the mentality of, I'm going to get in the weakest possible league I can get in, and then I'm going to be the champion of that league, you know, and, and, and if there was $50,000 on the line, I would understand that. The reason I don't understand is because there's not. There's there's very little on the line. There's towels and there's t-shirts and there's trophies and there's trips to obscure locations like, you know, Utah and you know, not to offend our Utah listeners, but I just I'm not I don't think I'm 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 wasting 12 weekends in a row against lesser opponents to try to try to take a trip to Utah. I can do that now if I want to. But so that's that's to me what it boils down to is just people want to win. I think the other thing is you've got no reason for the captains not to recruit ringers. I mean, if a captain recruits a ringer and the ringer dominates everybody and loses, the captain doesn't get punished. You know, the player gets punished. The player gets disqualified. Nothing happens to the captain. They don't tell the captain, hey, you got a player disqualified. You're never going to captain for the next five years. They don't say that. Just, oh, you know, you lost this player. So next season recruit, you know, other ringers and then have the manager scores better. So, I mean, you've got to, you've got to make the highest person involved accountable those things you've got to say hey if you get a ringer on your team and he gets disqualified or she you will not have a team next year and some of these captains it's their lifeblood to captain i love captaining i've captained teams for years <clears throat> and so i think you've got to you know you've got to make the incentives you got to make the incentives less for teams to win which we talked about last week of why do you even need a national championship for some of these leagues and secondarily you've got to make the punishments more if you want people to stop recruiting ringers uh, number three, the most innocent reason I had was that, you know, if I'm a 4-0 player and I dominate my league and I get moved up, and we're talking about Team Tennis here, if I get moved up, well, then all of a sudden I've got to go find a 4-5 team. Well, I don't know any 4-5s, so then I don't have a team to play on. I've got to go on a team of strangers. It's probably a different location. So then all of a sudden I'm driving an hour on a Saturday to go play with seven other people I don't know against really tough competition, so I'm losing a lot more often. So what about that sounds fun? So that part I understand. Um, you know, the alternative to that would be moving up as a team and improving and and obviously meet new people, which is what tennis is about. But a lot of people are in team tennis for the camaraderie of the team and meeting, you know, playing with friends and acquaintances. So that I get. And then I also put, you know, self-rating. We have a self-rating system now that's been in place for 15, 20 years, and you let, you're letting players choose the ratings they want to play at. So when you have the complete authority to choose your own rating... I mean, I think most people are going to defer to lower than what they are to kind of get their feet wet, you know, see how it goes, and then, you know, work their way up. And if I come out and beat everybody the first season, oh, darn, you know, I made the wrong decision and now I won a bunch of matches in a row and my team loves me and, and you know, I get a lot of credit from a lot of people for winning so many matches. So I think that, you know, all those things contribute to it. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard problem to address. I think, uh, you know, I've got a lot of ideas, like I said, that could fill... 10 podcasts, but you know, I'm just going to answer Marilyn's correct question directly, which is why are there so many? I think it, you know, just, it's a multitude of reasons. And I think until you give the a multitude of reasons not to have them, we're going to keep having them. So it's not a problem that's going to go away. Uh, and I, and what I don't like about it is I think it drives a lot of people out of competitive tennis. 
you know, that, that legitimate three, five player that shows up on a, on a weekend match and loses six Oh six Oh in 40 minutes. I mean, is that a league they're going to sign up for again? I mean, they got embarrassed in front of all their friends and they cost the team a match and they didn't even get a workout because the match was so fast and they don't care about going to nationals or sex. They don't probably even know there is a nationals or sectionals. They were just out here to get a competitive match on a Saturday and get a workout and they didn't get anything. And they drove an hour to play, you know, 40 minutes and they got nothing. So that person is probably not coming back to league next year. And it was because they had to play against a ringer. So that I think is the, is what I want to get out of tennis is that, you know, we're all trying to play the most, we all should be trying to play the most competitive match possible. If I lose a match seven, six, seven, six, I'm going to be furious, but I'm going to know that I had a chance to win that match and there's nobody to blame myself. If I go out and lose a match six, oh, six, oh, there was probably nothing I could have done differently to win that match. And there's probably nothing I could do for the next six months to practice to win that match. And it's just not, uh, it wasn't a fun and, and to win a match six, oh, six, oh, I feel the same way. You know, I'm not, that's not enjoyable for me either. So the whole reason we have all these leagues, all these levels is to get competitive matches. Otherwise let's just have one level and have everybody play and, you know, and not worry about it. But that's, that's why the levels are there is to get competitive matches. And so that's, you know, that's why we need to get rid of this. But anyway, like I said, that's a whole, whole nother show. And, uh, and coach and Rebecca will be here in the future to, to give us the rundown on all that. But I want to thank you guys for tuning in to the podcast. I am sorry that I was the only one here. You had to deal with this uh, monotone voice, as Coach likes to tell me. And, and until next time, join the revolution. And on behalf of Coach, bye, Maria. Bye.